over the last couple of years, there's been a resurgence in the popularity of one of the greatest movies ever made, The Karate Kid. And uh, a lot of that is due to the Cobra Kai TV show that's uh, come out recently. I'm kidding. I wouldn't call it one of the greatest movies I've ever seen, but I I do love it. I mean, come on. You've got this high school kid, Daniel, who can't fit in after moving from New Jersey to California. And he gets into it with the popular kid who bullies him, or it's the other way around, depending on whose version you, you believe. But the unassuming older Japanese maintenance man. He's actually a master of karate, and he teaches Daniel in unorthodox ways. There's a challenge to fight in a tournament that's followed by an amazing 80s montage, because you have to have one of those in the 80s. And of course, Daniel prevails, and at the end, Mr. Miyagi is smiling and nodding, and there's just a nice freeze frame. You know what? Maybe it is a cinematic masterpiece, I think. It spawned a few sequels. In the third one, something interesting happened. Daniel wants to defend his title, but Mr. Miyagi won't train him. But then Daniel comes across this smooth-talking co-creator of the Cobra Kai Dojo named Terry Silver. Now, I wouldn't expect many people to know this because the third movie was fine. You know, wasn't great, but it was fine. Uh, but anyway, Silver appears to Daniel as somebody who's a nice guy who wants to help train Daniel uh, when Mr. Miyagi wouldn't. But as the audience, we know that his true intentions are anything but good. As he's training, Daniel slowly begins to change, and he eventually starts acting in ways that he wouldn't have acted otherwise. And it was all because he had a bad teacher who wanted to draw him away from the good and really to kind of torture him with the evil. Now, this morning, we continue our series in the small book of Titus as we're preparing for the future. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open them to Titus chapter 1, and we're going to look at the last part of that opening chapter. As a reminder, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to a pastor who he had worked alongside named Titus. And Titus was either Greek or simply a non-Jewish individual who had traveled with Paul for a while. But their relationship was really close, as Paul, in the early, earlier part of the letter, calls Titus, my true son in our common faith. As we saw last week, Paul left Titus in Crete in order to help him strengthen the church that they'd started there. The, the church on the island, it would have been a fairly young church, and Paul wanted Titus to appoint elders and leaders to help lead these churches in the towns that they were in. And like we looked at, these elders were men who were to be blameless or above reproach. And Paul gave a list of attributes, both positive and negative, and these were focused on their character, not just their skill sets. In verse 9, Paul talks about what was the most important thing, though, that the elders must do. And he says he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. The elders are to encourage their flock by the proper and sound doctrine or teaching of the gospel of Jesus. And then if anybody would oppose it, they were to be refuted or rebuked. And this is what leads us into today's passage as we look a little bit closer at those who Paul says oppose the gospel message of Jesus. And so let me again read verse 9 and then move right into verse 10. 
So again, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. So after Paul reminds Titus of the direction that he gave him to appoint elders, he gives one of the reasons why elders are important to the church. They have to be able to protect the church against false teachers. Unfortunately for Paul, this is a theme that we see throughout his letters. It seems as if Paul would go into an area, he would preach the gospel, he'd start churches in that area, he'd stay for a while if possible, but eventually he would have to leave because you know, his, his mission was to go and take the gospel to the Gentiles, and so he would go to a new area and do the same process. What would happen is that after he had left, there would be people who would follow behind Paul, and they would teach something a little different than what Paul taught. A couple of years ago, we went through Paul's letter to the Galatians, and we saw Paul's response as he heard about these false teachers that had gone to the church in Galatia, the churches in Galatia. He wrote in Galatians 1, verses 6 and 7, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. In his letter to the Romans, Paul gives a warning about these false teachers. Romans 16, verses 17 and 18, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Now, I don't think Paul's trying to be rude here by calling people naive, but think about it. If you're new to the faith, if you are a new convert, you recently started following Christ or believing in Christ, you're going to have a little bit of naivety, mainly because you don't know what you don't know. And if somebody comes along with smooth talk and flattery, well, it sounds like they know what they're talking about, we tend to trust them. But a lot of times, that's just because we don't know any better. But that's why we absolutely need solid leadership in our churches. Those who, as Paul writes, hold firmly to the trustworthy message that's been taught. It's those who, like in his letter to Timothy, he, he writes as one of the requirements that they're not new converts, that they've been doing this for a while. Their faith is solid, and it's built on the foundation or the cornerstone of Jesus and his word. One of the most important jobs of the elders is to shepherd their people. But if you think about a shepherd, what, is, what does a shepherd do? They feed their flock, then they, they protect them. From everything that I've seen or read, sheep are dumb. And, and that's what Jesus calls us. So that should make you feel good. But it, it just means that we need shepherds. We have the good shepherd in Jesus. But we also have what we might call under-shepherds in our pastors and elders. And they're to protect us from the wolves, from the false teachers. Paul goes on to say what the elders are to do in verse 11. He says they must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. You ever seen a mob movie where somebody's 
speaking out against the family or something. And so the head of the family is like, you need to silence that person. This is not what Paul is saying here. Uh, it's not that kind of silencing. <laughs> Um, Paul does want to protect the people of the church in Crete, and these false teachers do need to have their teachings stopped, but he's not like saying, kill them. That would be bad. Um, but the language here in Greek, it's, it's like a muzzle for a dog or uh, a bridle for a horse. It's really just getting it under control. It's not just to prevent the teaching, but it, it's more constructive than that. These false teachers, they're sowing discord within what Paul calls uh, households. They're, they're disrupting whole households which are really more likely the churches in Crete because that's where they would have been meeting in, in houses. So how would the leadership which is being appointed for these churches respond? Well, we'll see that in a couple of verses, but first Paul's going to talk about the people of Crete. He says in verse 12, one of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. The people of Crete did not have a good reputation. Paul here quotes a Cretan philosopher from the 6th century BC named Epimenides who said this, or at least he was attributed to say this, that Cretans are always liars, evil brutes or animals, and lazy gluttons. Apparently the Greek uh, world during that time, they also agreed with this because there is a verb in the Greek language, kretize, that was used to express lying or cheating. So needless to say, the people of Crete, not looked on too favorably. But is Paul saying that all people in Crete fit this description? I don't think so. It seems more, uh, it seems hyperbolic to say that everybody is this way. Paul's likely applying this quote to the false teachers. The idea that he's using this quote is more as a rhetorical point. So what was Paul's instruction to deal with these false teachers? We see this in verse 13. He says, first, he says, the saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to the Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. Paul says to rebuke them sharply. What does that mean, though, to rebuke someone? One definition says it's the practice of pointing out another's mistake, fault, or sin. Looking at the Greek word, there are some other ways that you can translate it, like bring to light, or expose, or correct. And we've got to take a look at the fact that Paul does say that it should be a sharp rebuke as well. And again, just looking at the word, you could translate it as harshly, severely, rigorously. So Paul tells Titus that he is to rebuke the false teachers, or the leaders are to rebuke the false teachers who were leading the church astray. So to help us understand this word rebuke, we need to look at how it's used throughout the New Testament. If you remember when John the Baptist was arrested and then executed by Herod, it was because he was rebuking Herod in Luke 3.19, following Herod's marriage to his brother's wife. In Hebrews 12.5, the author of Hebrews talks about the Lord's discipline being a rebuke that you should not lose heart in receiving. Jesus, when speaking to the church in Laodicea in the book of Revelation, said in Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. 
The word's also used by Paul in the book of Ephesians about sinful deeds being exposed. Like in Ephesians 5.11, he says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And the word for expose is the same word that's for rebuke. But if you look at these, what you're going to see is there is a rebuke, but there's always a, seems to be a path of restoration as a part of them. You're trying to expose the bad deeds out of the darkness, but not just to eliminate the bad deeds or the person behind the bad deeds. The goal is to get them to restoration that can only be found in Christ. And you see that here in the Titus passage. Back in verse 13, he says, Rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. Yes, we are to rebuke false teaching. We are to expose it for what it is. But it's always to be done in love. I mean, remember, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself and love your enemies. We're rebuking these false teachers so that they might find life in, and true faith in Christ. Not the false thing that tr they're trying to peddle onto others, but the true freedom that is only found in following Jesus. And that protects them as well as the church from paying attention to what Paul calls Jewish myths or what are merely human commands. And from what we can make out here, that's what they were teaching that's wrong. They were adding extra commands on top of the gospel, on top of the grace of Jesus. Like if you're not really a follower of Jesus until you do this. And it becomes what we would call a works-based salvation. Earning your salvation. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is the totally undeserved free gift of God. You cannot earn it. And it doesn't mean that we stay the same after we've accepted that gift, but there's a saying, God loves you too much to leave you where he found you. Like he's going to grow you. He wants you to be better, but that's the work that he does following, you know, during your life here on earth. That's the process of sanctification. Unfortunately, though, not everybody's going to accept this truth. And Paul knows this, and he concludes the passage with one final description of these false teachers. Verse 15, he says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Some of the people that Paul seems to have had the most trouble with as he planted churches in areas like Turkey and Greece, they, they were these false teachers who tried to add these Jewish requirements on top of the Christian message of grace. Over time, they've become known as Judaizers. And one of the things that they focused on was the covenant of circumcision, that the male followers of Jesus should be circumcised as they were in Judaism. Now, Paul's ministry focused mainly on Gentile or non-Jewish areas of the Mediterranean. What he would do, though, as he arrived at these places is he would go first visit the Jewish synagogue, if there was one, and he would preach that Jesus was the long-promised, long-awaited-for Messiah. And his goal was to get Jewish people following Jesus because they knew the history of it. But then he would take the message 
to the Gentile people. And he'd have to change it a little bit because they didn't know the history of the Jewish people. And so he, w- he would approach it differently. The message didn't change, just the way that he presented it did. The passage in Scripture that I was taught that is the best to see this is Acts chapter 17. There's a little section in there where Paul is preaching to the people of Athens, Greece. And you see how he changes his approach to them. And some people followed, some people didn't, but that's what would what he did. But what would happen is Paul would then plant these churches, and then he'd leave, and then the Judaizers would come behind and try and say that Paul's gospel was incomplete. That you have to do these things in order to truly be saved. And they all came from the Old Testament law and really focused on the being clean and unclean. We don't have time to totally get into it, but basically there were times where you were ceremonially clean and times where you were ceremonially unclean. And if you were unclean, you needed to do some things like sacrificing a lamb or something like that to become clean again. Here's the thing, though. Paul's argument is that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross covered once for all the idea of being ceremonially clean or unclean. Paul says the gospel is sufficient. You don't, you don't need to add any other requirements to it. And as he concludes, he, he says, to the pure or to the clean, of which all who follow Jesus are seen that way by God, not because of anything we've done, but because of Jesus. To the pure, all things are pure, and that includes the Gentiles. But those who are corrupted and don't believe, they see everything as impure or unclean. So they have that in their minds. They've got to work to earn God's favor. The gospel isn't enough. That you're not truly saved unless you do whatever it is they're trying to get you to do. It's like the Pharisees when Jesus' disciples, they were eating food with unwashed hands in Mark chapter 7, which opposed the Pharisees' tradition. And then Jesus quotes Isaiah to them when he says this. He says, uh, Mark 7, verse 6, he says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it's written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Paul says these false teachers claim that they know God, but their actions say otherwise. And then he calls them detestable, disobedient, and unfit or unqualified for doing anything good. And that's going to lead us into the next part of the letter where he turns the focus back to the leadership of the church and Titus in particular and how he should teach appropriate sound doctrine. But that we're going to get into next week as we get into chapter 2. But what are we to do with this passage? I think we need to look at it from two different ways. First, we need to see it from the aspect of appointing leaders in our church. As we looked at last week, Paul gave Titus the character traits of those who we should be looking for in our church leadership. And again, that's an important thing that we've got to keep in mind as we continue to move forward with our pastoral search. Really, any time that we appoint leadership, whether it be elders or any, any leadership in the church, we need to think about these things. 
Paul said, though, at the end of that passage in verse 9, that the leadership must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught. That's what the passage we looked at today has been explaining. The leaders in our church, the elders, the pastors, it's important that we hold firm to the gospel that nothing overshadows it. it. We don't teach anything against it or even allow false teaching to even permeate our church a little bit. And it can happen, but if it does, we've got to act quickly and decisively to stop that, to stop that teaching. And we do that, like Paul says, with a sharp rebuke. And it's because, you know, we are concerned for you. We have a concern for your souls. That's that's why we do what we do. But we also do it for the people who we're rebuking as well that they might also become sound in the faith. So that's the first way to look at it in our leadership in the church. But the second way is a personal way. Like in your own life, you need to be vigilant in what you're letting in as teaching. You need to pray that God would help you see everything through the lens of the gospel. What you watch, what you read, even what we teach, everything. There are some really compelling books or, or classes or a whole lot of stuff that, that have some truth. The Judaizers had some truth. You know what they say? Like all good lies are based with some semblance of truth. But it gets distorted. And it's not the true gospel. We are to hold firm to the gospel. To do that, we think critically as well. As we hold firm, we think critically about what you're being taught, even by us. We hope that we have built up trust over time, but we're human. We make mistakes too. You can hold us accountable. I mean, we study a lot. We try our best to get it right. But still, think critically about it. Our goal, though, we, we want you to be able to consider these things for yourselves to weigh the truth of what is taught against the gospel, against God's scripture. You don't have to do this totally alone. I mean, you have access to the leaders in this church, and there are nine elders that we have. Surely you can get a hold of one of us. But in reality, like, you're not around us that much. Unless you're married to one of the guys, and then you think, you might think, you know, I'm around these guys too much. But our goal is to equip you to be able to do this on your own. That's what we're supposed to be doing as a church, as leadership in this church. We are to equip you to live out the Christian life, to serve in the Christian life. There are many rebellious people. I sometimes wonder if there might be more today than there were in Paul's day. Because there are so many, though, We've got to continue to hold fast to the truth of the gospel. Jesus went to the cross to cover your sins, to cover all the things that have kept you separated from God. That's what we hold firmly to. Because what else do we have? I am so totally with the teacher of Ecclesiastes who said that without God, everything is meaningless. It's a chasing after vapor. Nothing matters without God 
were without the good news of the gift of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It is a gift that has been placed before you. You just need to decide if you're going to take hold of it and never let it go. The invitation is there. It's waiting for you. Hold firm to that precious gift. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, that precious gift is what we remember now. As we come to this time in our service where we come around the table for communion, we remember the blood that was spilled, the body that was broken. We remember our sins that were taken to the cross. We remember that your son died for us. We take the time right now in remembrance and celebration because he conquered death. Our sins have been covered as your children adopted into your family. We have been forgiven. And your Holy Spirit now lives in us to comfort us, to guide us, to lead us. For all of these things, Lord, we cannot repay you. But I pray that we would devote ourselves, our whole being to you and you alone. You're the only one who is worthy. We thank you, Lord. And we pray for these things in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.